With that, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning as Emmett comes to preach it. And it's from chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. It says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. Thank you, Michael. Good morning, Christ community. Great to see all of you here this morning, and it's good to uh, continue on in this series this morning in the book of Esther. What an amazing story this is. It's a story where we get this glimpse of God working behind the scenes, uh, His providence at work in the lives of people and events all to accomplish His will. And it's interesting that the people that He's using to accomplish His will is is an interesting mix of people. It's people that know him, like Esther and Mordecai, but as Michael's pointed out, they're flawed heroes. They're not perfect. But he's not only using people that know him, he's using people that are far away from him, people like even Queen Vashti has played a role, and King Ahasuerus, of course, and the servants and the eunuchs, and perhaps most amazingly of all, God is using this evil man who's called the enemy of the Jews, this man Haman, and it's all for his purpose of accomplishing his will, which in this context in Esther is the 
the saving and the deliverance and the perseverance and, per- and preserving of his people, the Jews. So today in, in chapter 5, we're going we're gonna to look at this next scene. The story's been unfolding, and now we're in chapter 5 where we see this unfold. But if you were here last week, you know that chapter 4 kind of ends with a little bit of a cliffhanger, right? There was a little bit of, of mystery and wonder what was going to happen because Haman has hatched this, this plan to destroy all of the Jewish population in the entire kingdom. He's got a beef with Mordecai, but it's not enough for him to satisfy his wrath just against Mordecai. He says, I'm going to wipe out the entire population of Jews. I'm going to annihilate every Jew in the kingdom. And when Mordecai finds out about Haman's plan, remember last week we had this back and forth throughout chapter 4 between Esther and Mordecai, because Mordecai finds out about it and says, I have to go to the only person that has any chance of helping, and that's the queen. I'm going to go to Queen Esther. She's my cousin. I raised her. So Mordecai sends this message to her, and he says, here's what Haman has planned. He he sends a copy of the order, and he says to Esther, you have to do something about this. Go to the king and beg him to save our people. To which Esther replies, you are crazy. There's no way of doing that. She didn't exactly say that, but she said, if I go before the king, it's a death sentence. No, I will not do that. And then Mordecai replies with those famous words. I think last week Michael called this the monumental moment in the book of Esther, and it really is, because Mordecai tells her, who knows, Esther, perhaps you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And it's that moment that persuades Esther to change her mind. So we ended chapter 4 with verse 16, well, 16 and 17, but look at verse 16 on the screen. This is Esther. She says, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink three days or night, three days, night or day. And I and my young women, we will fast as you do, and then I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish... I perish. Esther is willing to risk everything. She's risking her crown. She's risking her comfort. She's risking her position. She's risking her very life simply by defying the law and going to see the king. And she comes to this conclusion and she says, and I, if I perish, I perish. And the chapter ends. And there's your cliffhanger. What happens? right? Cue the dramatic music, right? Dun, 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 dun. Like, what happens next? If you think back into the days of network television with me for just a moment, okay? If you're old enough to remember network television, there were only three networks. Four if you count PBS, but nobody did. Three networks, right? And this is in the days before streaming, so all you younger people, you couldn't binge your show on Netflix. I mean, you had to wait to find out what happened, right? So think back to network television. And if you wanted to watch your favorite show, it was appointment watching. You know, you had to make plans to catch your show. So what's your favorite show? Well, obviously it was Thursday night, seven o'clock, the greatest theme song that Mike Post ever wrote in his career. Well, it was the greatest theme song. Maybe you didn't catch it from that, but it really was. Magnum P.I., okay, Wes Lane offered to help me out on the guitar. That probably would have been her better move right there. 
okay? Magnum PI, right? So you have the chopper flying over the coast of, of Hawaii, the red Ferrari sliding around, the man himself, Tom Selleck, pulling down sunglasses, giving the eyebrow wiggle, right? Tom Selleck's the man. My family tells me I like Tom Selleck a little too much. I disagree. Tom, if you're watching, hey. Okay? But just work with me here for a minute. All right? So you're watching your favorite show, Magnum. He's, he's out doing his thing. He's chasing the bad guys, solving the mystery. He's annoying Higgins. And then you look at the clock, and you realize there's only four minutes left till the end of the show. And there's no way he's going to solve this mystery by the end of the show. And then you have, you know, the exploding car or whatever it is, and does he live or die? No, no. And then the, the, at the bottom of the screen, those words appear, these dreaded words. What are they? To be continued. And the reason that's dreaded words, because you had to wait a whole week to find out what happened. Well, if you were here last week, you had to wait a whole week to find out what happens to Esther. If I perish, I perish. But you read ahead. I know that you did. And we all know what happened. But let's look at chapter 5 together. It's really divided into two parts, right? Chapter 5 is in two parts. Part 1 is what I've called an audience with a king and a banquet with the queen. That's verses 1 through 8. The second half of the chapter, 9 through 14, we really see the pride and the foolishness of Haman, okay? So we're going to look at both of these, these uh, halves of chapter 5, and uh, we're just going to kind of recap what happens here, and then at the end we'll come back and we'll look at some ways we can apply the truths that we find here in chapter 5. So part 1 opens with Esther standing in her royal robes in the inner court of the king, and not to draw out the analogy too far, but if it is the opening scene of our favorite TV show, I can just see, you know, the camera zooms in on these royal robes gathered around her feet. And the camera zooms up and we see the beautiful face of Esther, crown on her head, but she has this look of determination on her face because Esther has made her choice. She is standing in the king's inner court. She has approached the throne room with a king sitting on the throne and it is too late to turn back. The die has been cast. Esther knows that the decision of whether she lives or dies will be made in the next few seconds. What will the king do? The king lifts up his eyes and he sees Esther in all of her queenly glory standing before him, but she's uninvited. Because there's no question here, see, whether Esther is guilty or not. She is guilty just by the fact that she's there. She's broken the law. And with just the move of his hand, the king can have her executed. All he has to do is just do this, and she's executed. Or he can use his hand instead to pick up his scepter and extend it to her. And that means that her life has been spared, and it's, it's the pardon that she's hoping for. So no more camera analogies, but you have to admit... This is an intense scene. She has, she has made her choice, and she's, her life is in the balance, and she goes before the king totally uncertain of what he's going to do. But it's not lost on the king. Esther has just taken the ultimate risk, and he knows this. No one comes into him uninvited, and yet she did. So he asks her the question, Esther, why are you here? What is it that you want why would you take such an incredible risk? You must have something important 
to ask me. So he tells her, tell me what you want and anything you ask will be yours, even up to half the kingdom. By the way, that's, that's probably a little hyperbole, some Persian hyperbole going on here. It probably wasn't a, a, a literal, you can have half my kingdom. But what he's saying is, I'm giving you a blank check. Ask anything you want and I'll give it to you. And what's her reply? Well, her reply is not what we expect. We expect her to, to fall at his feet and to beg for the life of the Jews, right? That's why she took the risk. But she doesn't do that. Instead, she says, tell the king, or she says to the king that I want to host a banquet and I only want two guests to come. And that first guest is you and the second guest is Haman. Why would she do that? This is, this is the obvious question. Like, Esther, what are you doing? You're in the presence of the king. Now's your chance. Why don't you ask? And there are several possible reasons. I'm going to give you four quick reasons why she may have delayed her request and asked for this banquet instead. I think each of them have some merit, but I think uh, particularly the last one. The first option could be that she's requesting the king's presence at a banquet because she wants to be in his presence. Remember, she, she said earlier she hasn't seen him for 30 days. And she wants him to know, I desire to be with you. I want to be in your presence. I don't think that was an overly sexual thing. I think she's saying, I haven't been in your presence, and I'm asking to spend time with you. From a real practical standpoint, another part of her strategy could have been that she figures that the king may be more inclined to grant her request on a full stomach and an empty cup. Sounds to me like she knows men pretty well, right? So let's, let's get him in a good mood. Let's have him happy to see me. Let's feed him. Let's give him some wine, and then I'll make my request. Another option is she could be testing the waters here, and I think there's a possibility here where she's kind of testing the waters to see where she stands with him. We're not sure if she had fallen out of favor. Is that why she hadn't seen him for 30 days? But she's testing the water and saying, if he agrees to this request to come and and eat at my table, maybe he'll be willing to hear the big request that I have. But I think the last reason is one of the main reasons why she did this, and that is she knew that she needed Haman to be present when she revealed his evil plan to the king. She wanted Haman in the room. So she extends her invitation, and true to form, the king agrees immediately. You have to give... You have to give the king some credit here. Oh, Xerxes, you know, he, he is quick to make decisions. Not always good decisions, but he makes them quick. And so she says, I want a feast. And he says, get Haman in here. We're going to the dinner. So off they go. And Haman and the king come to Esther's feast, and they, they eat and they drink wine. And she still hasn't told him what she wants. And so the meal is finished, and the king looks at her, and he goes, Esther, you, you have me here. Tell me, what is it that you really want? Now's her chance. Now she's going to tell him what she really wants, right? No. She says, actually, I'm going to make a, another feast tomorrow night, a second banquet, and I want you and Haman to come back tomorrow night. And again, we have to ask why. <clears throat> Esther, what, what's in her mind? Why would you do this? Scholars here give... Three possible reasons, and again, I think there's some merit um, here. Now, I don't agree with the first one, but some scholars believe that this is actually um, Esther just became fearful. You know, she, she kind of got caught up in the moment and just couldn't bring herself to do it, and, and she basically just lost her courage. I, I, don't, I don't go with that one, but it's possible. I think 
two is that she could have been showing some reverence here to the king by not pressing him. Uh, There's an old proverb that says, what is hastily asked is often hastily denied, but what is asked with a pause deserves to be considered. And it could be that that's part of her strategy. The king could be thinking, man, Esther is dragging this thing out. This must be really, really important, whatever she has to ask me. But I think really what we see going on here, the third option, this is what I believe, is what we're really seeing here is simply the providence of God. We see God's hand at work once again behind the scenes. Because God, I believe, put this in Esther's mind because we know, if you've read ahead, there's something really important that has to happen that night. And what happens that night will pave the way for her request. So that's your teaser for next week, because that's chapter 6, right? But something important is going to happen that night. And that makes everything work out, and that's God at work. Okay, so that's 1 through 8. So now let's look at the second part of chapter 5. Okay, this is really the pride and foolishness of Haman, starting with verse 9. And Haman leaves the banquet, it says in verse 9, joyful and glad of heart. Okay, Haman is on cloud nine. He's just come from a feast with the king and the queen. He's full of himself, which we'll talk about in a moment. But his good mood only lasts for a few moments until he comes to the gate and once again sees Mordecai and how Mordecai does not stand or show respect. And, and Haman once again is outraged, filled with anger. And verse 10 tells us that Haman restrained himself. Restrained himself from what? Restrained himself from having Mordecai killed on the spot. And I think probably what's going through Haman's mind is he's saying Mordecai's day is is coming. His days are numbered. Not only is he going to die, but because of my brilliant plan and my manipulation of the king, I've got this whole thing planned out. I'm not only going to kill him, I'm going to kill all of his people. So he restrains himself from doing it right there. And he arrives home, and he's angry. He's he's filled with joy. He's happy. Now he's angry. And then he gets home, and he does what normal people wouldn't do, but this is what he does. He says, you know what's going to make me feel better? I'm going to gather all my friends, and I'm going to have my wife come along as well. I'm going to sit them down, and I'm just going to remind them how great I truly am. And that will make me feel better. And that's exactly what he does. Look at verse 10, starting in verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife's rash. And Haman recounted to them, listen to this list. If you want to talk about an ego trip that this guy's on, look at the list. He reminds them the splendor of his riches. They already know he's rich, but he reminds them anyway. He reminds them the number of, of his sons. They also know that information, but he tells them anyway. The promotions with which the king has honored him, again, they know that. And how he has advanced him, Haman, above all the officials and all the servants of the king. And then Haman adds the cherry on top to his ego trip. Look at verse 12, he says, even Queen Esther. It's not just the king that loves me, the queen also loves me because she invited me to the feast, just me. The king and me and no one else. And he says, not only that, tomorrow she invited me back and I'm going back again. Do you see the pride that has completely consumed Haman? 
But even after recounting how, how wealthy he is, how powerful he is, how important he is, how privileged he is, he just can't let go of Mordecai. Look at verse 13. Haman says, yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as Haman the Jew is sitting at the king's gate. His pride and arrogance had consumed him to the point where the only thing that would satisfy that is this bloodthirst that he has. He wants to see Haman and all the Jews annihilated. And as we've seen before throughout the book of Esther, there's bad advice given and bad advice accepted. Okay? But again, even though this is bad advice given and accepted, it's part of God's plan. And if you have read ahead, you know how, how important this next piece of information is and how God is orchestrating this because Haman's wife and his friends say, if you're so upset with Mordecai, Haman, then build a gallows 75 or 50 cubits high, which if you look in your study notes, it says 75 feet. So a cubit was about 18 inches. So they say, build a gallows 75 feet high and place Mordecai on it. And whether the gallow itself was 75 feet high, some think that maybe it was just placed on an existing structure that made the entire height 75 feet, doesn't really matter. The point is they're going to make a spectacle of this execution. And just a quick side note, this is probably not gallows as, as you and I think of it. This is more likely some sort of, of stake upon which the victims are impaled. It's a, it's a gruesome and horrific death. And some Bible scholars actually believe that this form of execution that was really perfected by the Persians is the forerunner of the Romans uh, getting uh, crucifixion as their form of execution. So this is kind of the forerunner to that. So they impale the victims on this stake. And in this case, they want Mordecai 75 feet in the air because they want to see, have the entire city watch him suffer and die. So Haman, of course, says, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And so he orders the gallows to be made, and he plans to tell the king the next morning to have Mordecai executed. What Haman doesn't know is that God has other plans. And again, that's chapter 6, okay? So in the time we have left, let's go back, and I'm going to share four things that we can apply from this chapter. Four things that we can uh, look at in our own lives, and we're going to kind of do them in reverse order. So we're going to start here kind of at the end with Haman and work our way back. The first is that pride is the root of sin. Pride is the root of sin. Again, many theologians are of the belief that pride is the very essence. Listen to what William Barclay said, the British theologian. He said, pride is the ground in which all other sins grow and the parent from which all other sins come. Pride leads the way. In fact, I don't think it's a, a coincidence that in Proverbs chapter 6, we have this list of things that God hates, seven things that God hates, and leading the list is pride. Look at Proverbs 6, verse, starting in verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, there's your pride. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Were you putting those verses through your Haman filter 
He's checking a lot of boxes here. Haman is evil. He's the enemy of the Jews. He's the enemy of God, and yet God is using Haman himself to to accomplish his plans. And you know, we could do you could do an entire sermon on the sin of pride and why it's so dangerous and why God clearly warns against it throughout Scripture. But for today, uh, let's just look at two aspects of pride that we see here in Haman's life that can serve as a warning for you and for me. So we said pride is the root of sin, but what we see here is that pride is based in false confidence. And secondly, it ultimately leads to destruction. Pride is based in false confidence, and it leads to destruction. Pride gives a false confidence that I'm responsible for everything, and everything that I have is because of me. And I'm responsible for this this kingdom that I've created for myself. It's all about me. My dad uh, has, throughout his whole life and and just every time I think of him, he, he has these, these little sayings and quips. He's just known for them. You know, if a situation arises, some of them are funny and some of them are a little more profound. But any time I think of someone being prideful, I think of something my dad always would say. And he said, a man who's wrapped up in himself makes a very small package. That's really true. If we are wrapped up in ourselves and we are, we are just self-consumed, then it really... It really makes us unappealing to other people because when pride runs its full course, it replaces God with ourselves. That's what made Lucifer turn from an angel to Satan, right? Isaiah 14 tells us that Lucifer says, I will be like the Most High. I'm going to replace God. I don't need God. It's just me. And pride is self-consuming when it runs its full course. Pride is the antithesis of godliness. They cannot coexist. Cannot. Pride makes no room for anyone but ourselves. If we are full of ourselves, we can't be full of God. Right? That's why pride is so dangerous. We become the king or the queen of our own little kingdom, and it gives us a sense of of a false confidence, self-importance, self-reliance. That's why Jesus, in the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, As Jesus is telling this story, he says in verse 20, he says, God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul will be required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Pride gives this false sense of confidence and security. It's, it's, when you think of it, it's the very opposite of Christ himself. What do we know from Christ? He humbled himself. He emptied himself. He laid aside the glory that was due him to become Emmanuel, to become our Savior, the God-man. He submitted to the will of the Father. Everything about Christ is humility. Everything about Satan is pride. And we have here in Esther 5 the epitome of that in the life of Haman. But what we also see here in verse 9 is, even though Haman doesn't know it, this is really the beginning of the end for Haman. Because pride leads to destruction. 
He doesn't realize it yet, but the divine providence of God is orchestrating these events and these people, and he's even using Haman himself, his pride, his arrogance, his evil intent, and he's going to bring an end not only to Haman's evil plan, he's going to bring an end to Haman's very life. Haman's situation uh, reminds me of the words that David said in Psalm 7. Listen to these words. Psalm 7, beginning with verse 14. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Does that remind you of Haman? Haman is digging his own grave, or to be more literal, Haman is building his own gallows. He just doesn't know it. And it's all because of pride. And whenever we see pride taking root in our lives, we must ruthlessly pursue to eradicate it. Because if we allow pride to grow in our lives, it will eventually consume us. And when we are full of ourselves, there is no room for godliness. They cannot coexist. So we see that pride is the root of sin. The other second thing we see here at the end or in chapter 5, and this is really a comparison of Haman and Esther together, and that is what we do with authority reveals our character. What we do with authority reveals our character, and it's a perfect case study when we compare the use of authority or power or position between Haman and Esther. Esther used her position to value others. She put other people before herself, even at the risk of her own life. Now, she didn't do it willingly at first. She said, I can't do that. Mordecai said, I think you've been placed here for this time. I think God's work is at plan. She surrenders to God's will, and she actually puts the needs of her people above herself. That's how she used her authority. Haman, on the contrary, will do literally anything, including mass murder, to elevate himself. It's the exact opposite. So whatever position of authority God has given to us, whether it's large or small, whether it's uh, um, at work or home or wherever God has given us a position of, of authority, we should ask ourselves two questions. Here's the two questions. Do I use my authority to promote myself or to help others? Secondly, do I use my authority to bring attention to myself or to glorify God? And again, that can be, you can think in a work context, you can think at home, you can think even just uh, in a much more um, a much more relaxed atmosphere or less formal way, just when you're with your friends. How am I using the position that I'm in here to affect other people? Is it all about me or am I serving other people? Because how we answer those two questions reveals our character. It tells what's inside. The third thing we see here in chapter 5, so we have pride is the root of our sin. What we do with authority reveals our character. Thirdly, do courageous things. Can I just encourage you this morning? Do something courageous. You may say, that sounds a little scary. Sometimes it is. But God can use us when we step out and trust him and do courageous things. What Esther did ranks up there with one of the most courageous acts recorded in all of Scripture. It's very easily she could have been included in in the faith chapter of Hebrews 11, 
because it's of that level, right, of what she did. She placed her physical life on the line, knowing that once she was standing before the king, he could pardon her or he could kill her with simply the wave of his hand. But she had made her decision. She said, I'm going to go see the king. Even though it's against the law, if I die, I die. And I don't think, by the way, I don't think that was Esther just resigning herself with this, like, you know, fatalistic shrug of the shoulders. Well, whatever happens, happens. If I die, I die. You know, I can't do anything about it anyway, so whatever. That's not it. That was not her attitude. So it wasn't resigned fatalism. I don't think it was also Esther just, you know, mustering up the courage, you know. Stand up straight, shoulders back, walk in. Take it on the chin. I don't think it was her doing that. Now, with that said, I think we should note that Esther did what she could do. You know, this was one of Michael's points from last week. Only you can do what only you can do. So she did everything she could to put it in her favor. I mean, you have to remember, Esther is presenting herself to the king in the best way possible. She's making sure that she looks extraordinarily beautiful You know, she put on her royal robe. She didn't put on her royal sweatpants with her royal oversized T-shirt and her royal fuzzy slippers, you know. She went in with the royal robe. She made herself look good. So we do what we can do, but ultimately it's not about us. Esther's using everything at her disposal to put herself in the best position possible. But I don't believe her courage is coming from herself. She's not saying, you know, I am the queen, Thanks for reminding me of that, Mordecai. I am the queen. I am beautiful. I'll go in. I got this. It's not this this self-courage that she's just drumming up from inside her. I think the more likely scenario is that Esther has surrendered herself to the will of God, to Mordecai's words. Remember, those were the words that moved her. He said, it is very possible that the reason you're here in this place, in this position, is because of this very time that God needs you. That's what moved her. She was believing that God was using her in his plan. And when we believe that God is using us in his plan, it gives us the courage to stand before the king. Her courage reminds me a lot of the confidence shown by three young Jewish men about 120 years before this. You know them. King Nebuchadnezzar threatens to throw them into the furnace for not bowing down and worshiping the idol that he had created. Do you remember what they said to him? to King Nebuchadnezzar? They said, we believe that God is able to deliver us. And we believe that he will deliver us out of your hand. But know this, King Nebuchadnezzar, even if he chooses not to, we will not bow down. You hear the confidence there? We believe that God is able to do this. He is able to save us. In fact, we believe he will. But even in his divine providence, if he chooses not to, doesn't matter because they had surrendered their life. I think that's where Esther is. She is saying, my life no no longer matters. The courage that I am going in is because I know God has put me here for this time, for this season, and he has a plan, and I'm walking in it. God calls us to do hard things things that take courage. And you might be in the middle of something right now that God is calling you to do or a decision or a situation that that has you fearful. Can I encourage you to do the hard thing? To be courageous, not in your own self, 
but in what God is calling and how he has equipped you. Here's what I do know. Doing the right thing is very rarely the easy thing. Very rarely is the right thing the easiest thing. So don't, re- don't resign to fatalism. Don't resign to, well, you know, whatever. Okay. What happens, happens. Don't rely on yourself to manufacture that courage. Use the gifts God's given you, yes, but ultimately do the courageous thing knowing that we can have the same calm assurance that's rooted in God, the God that we serve. And he will go before us because God is at work. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you are at work and we see your hand throughout the book of Esther. You are, you are orchestrating people and events and it's clear for us to see because we're reading this. It's harder for us to see when you're doing that in our own lives, but we know that you are the very same God. We know that our lives are in your hands and you are at work. And there are times when, when we face discouraging, difficult choices that require great courage. So my prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would make us a courageous people to follow you. Remind us, Lord, to be alert for the sin of pride in our lives. May you help us eradicate that. Remove it from the way that it can destroy us because ultimately it will. Thank you for the way that you have uh, gifted and equipped each of us to put us in a specific time and place. We may not be queen of a kingdom, but we know that you have a plan and purpose for each and every one of us, and we pray that we would walk worthy in that. Thank you for the truth of your word, and we ask and pray all of this in your name. Amen. Well, as we move into a time of communion, if you were listening carefully, and I know all of you were, you probably said, wait a minute, you said four points, and I think you only gave three. And that's because the fourth point that we see here in Esther chapter 5, we're going we're gonna to look at this point together as we look toward taking communion together this morning. And that is that we boldly approach the throne. We boldly approach the throne. And when you think of it, there are some amazing contrasts between Esther standing outside the throne room, ready to walk in before the king, and how we can come before the king of kings and enter before him and his throne. So listen to some of these contrasts between what Esther had and what you and I have as followers of Christ. Esther came before a proud, impulsive, and flawed king. We come to a God who is filled with mercy, grace, and rules in holiness. Esther was not invited, nor was she called. We have been invited and called. The Spirit says, come. Esther had the law against her. We are no longer captives to the law because we've been set free by the work of Christ. Esther had no friend to advocate or intercede for her with the king. 
we have an advocate with the Father. And that advocate is his son in whom he is well pleased and he is interceding for us. Esther was unsure if her crime would be forgiven and if her life would be spared. And we know with all confidence that our sin has been pardoned and our eternal life is secured. An amazing contrast between Esther going to see the king and how we can come before the king of kings. The writer of Hebrews describes for us how Jesus Christ, our advocate and our high priest, has interceded for us with God the Father, securing our redemption through the sacrifice of his own body, the shedding of his own blood, so that we might have access to the throne of God. So let me read the words of Hebrews to you. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since then, we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm going to give you a few moments to just reflect on those words and to meditate and thank God for allowing us to have access to his throne through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Meditate on those words, and I'll come back in a few moments and we will take the elements together.